So since the Orioles were brought up, uh, <laughs> let me start with an excursus um, on baseball. Um, you know, it's funny. It's, uh, I haven't talked on this topic for a few years because after The Doors of the Sea came out in 2005, I became the fellow that everyone asked to come and talk about evil. Uh, I mean, evil in the sense of suffering, uh, natural evil, and so I became the evil guy. And, uh, but I thought what I could do tonight so is, is not to re- relive the, the trauma of those days uh, would be not to talk about evil, natural evil, but to talk about the book that I wrote about natural evil. Um, because it, 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 it brings back... Uh, Certain memories. I'm sure. I mean, most of us here are old enough <laughs> to remember the uh, the great earthquake and tsunami of of, of 2004. And uh, for whatever reason, that became uh, uh, an issue of contention among believers and unbelievers, mostly unbelievers. Uh, in the popular press, in a way that most natural disasters don't. And I think it may simply have been the sheer scale of the event and the footage. It's rare that one sees something, and, and, we, and our televisions, if you may remember, were full of images of the, of the water rising and, and engulfing, fleeing victims. And then the aftermath, the, the corpses, the corpses of children, so the book was called The Doors of the Sea because I, 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 took the, um, I took the name from Job, chapter 38, who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb. When I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick darkness a swaddling band for it and break it up for my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed. So I'm going to do something slightly um, odd. I'm going to just read the first short meditation from the book. I don't know how many people have read the book already, in which case you're not getting your money back. (laughs) You're here. I've got you. You're a captive audience. But uh, I'll just read the short narrative and then move into the, the larger argument I want to make because it it, uh, it sets a scene for me. It takes me back to a memory because it actually was a spiritual um, it was an episode in my own spiritual formation that year. So to begin, in that verdant arc of lands that forms the northeastern rim of the Indian Ocean and that takes the Bay of Bengal into its embrace, sweeping out from Sri Lanka and up the coasts of eastern India to Bangladesh and Burma, then down the Malay Peninsula to Thailand and Malaysia and further down the coast of Sumatra to the western tip of Java, there are gods without number. Hinduism, in the full profusion of its various forms, is, of course, the dominant religion only of India, the Tamils of Sri Lanka, and the greater Indian diaspora of Southeast Asia. But at one time or another, the Vedic deities have held sway over all these shores. 
Among the Hinayana Buddhist peoples of the region, the Sinhalese of Sri Lanka and most of the native inhabitants of Thailand and Burma, they've always enjoyed a high, if subordinate, eminence in the order of religious devotions. The Chinese communities of the Malay Peninsula in India, Indonesia, being Mahayana Buddhist for the most part, but also Taoist and Confucian, are attended by bodhisattvas and divinities of a more remote provenance. Islam is the official faith of Bangladesh and Malaysia and the dominant religion of Indonesia. Christianity, Catholic and Protestant, has a presence in all these lands, in some cases small but substantial, in others somewhat more fugitive and beleaguered. As for the aboriginal animisms of the indigenous people, such as the not worship of Burma, none of the great faiths of the far or near east has succeeded in displacing them, and needless to say, perhaps in many places, the demarcations between differing traditions are lost in a golden haze of generous and unreflective syncretism. Very few of those who live at the upper periphery of the Indian Ocean doubt that among the many powers keeping watch over those waters, benign or capricious, transcendent or local, omnipotent or merely powerful, there is at least one who is able to govern their tides and turbulences and to keep the sea within its appointed bounds. But far below the water's surface, at and beneath the ocean floor, lies a source of elemental violence so vast, convulsive, unpredictable and destructive that one might almost be tempted to think that it itself is a particularly indomitable and infernal sort of God. And in fact, the most enduring manifestations of its power above sea level, the grim volcanic islands that lie in the long catenate archipelago off the western shores of Indonesia, have in their time no doubt been objects of worship, supplication, propitiation, and pious dread. These islands are situated along perhaps the most volatile geodynamic fissure in the world, in a place where apparently two enormous tectonic plates, the Indo-Australian and the Eurasian, upon whose edge Sumatra and Java are precariously poised, continuously pass one another by in their slow, interminable millennial migrations. It's an immense seam of unquenchable fire which down through the geological epochs has shaped and reshaped this entire crescent of islands and continental littorals. Its forces do not subside. It is never truly dormant, but it, but it does know long intervals of comparative stability during which life above goes on largely undisturbed. Up there, when the weather is calm, the water is smooth, immeasurable, tremulous mirror of the tropical sky, filling with crystalline brilliancy. Its waves, sapphire blue at their crests and a deep glassy green in their inner folds. I think some of you may have seen those waters. I'm actually in a part of the world that's not that far. Tourists, upon whom many of the countries of the region so desperately depend, come by the thousands in order to luxuriate on ivory beaches and gaze out at the beauty of the ocean and marvel at the extravagant lushness of the South Asian floras. And on good days, it's almost impossible to imagine the slow, constant, savage geological ferment so many fathoms down. 
When, though the power lurking below the marine fault does break forth with full strength, the devastation it wreaks is more terrible than the mind can easily encompass. It was here, as we all know, in 1883, in the Strait of Sunda between Sumatra and Java, that the entire island of Krakatau exploded, killing more than 36,000 persons, of whom all but a minuscule minority died not from the burning ash flung into the air, but from the massive tsunamis that followed. Tens of thousands of men, women, and children drowned on land, carried out to sea, shattered by the force of the water. And it appears, moreover, that this same volcano had erupted in similar fashion many times in the past, only to form itself anew, and even now it's growing into an island again in the broad mouth of the Sunda Strait, storing up fire for its next eruption. And, of course, earthquakes are inevitable. As the tectonic plates move, they on occasion grate against one another, impede one another's drift, and then jolt free. And when they collide, the heavier basalt of the ocean floor can even actually slide beneath and raise the lighter continental shelf. When this happens, it is as if the doors of the sea have been flung open wide again, The ocean breaks from its confines with annihilating power, and God, it seems, does not stay its waves. And that's what happened again on the day of Christmas, the second day of Christmas, Boxing Day 2004, when an earthquake measured on the Richter scale at an unimaginable magnitude of 9.0 struck offshore of Banda Asa at the northern end of Sumatra early in the morning. We do all remember it, right? Yeah, kind of hard to forget. No one was prepared. Warnings were given. Some of the regional governments, which for some reason not made public in most places. At the shorelines, the lovely, glistening, hyaline waters were all at once polluted with the silt and debris and murk of the ocean's bed and rose with such terrifying suddenness that very few, even as far away as Sri Lanka, had sufficient time to flee. And in the days immediately following, a proper picture of the real dimensions of the disaster was strangely slow in reaching the world beyond. What we heard at first seemed tragic enough, but in subsequent days the number of the dead began to be reckoned in tens of thousands, and then finally in hundreds of thousands, and the true horror of what had occurred became in some small measure appreciable to us. As I write, this is when the book was at, the most recent estimate is very near a quarter million. And when the images of the aftermath began to appear, they seemed too dreadful to believe. Films of those caught amid the flood, clinging desperately to poles and railings and occasionally losing their grip to be torn away by the fierce rush of the water. Satellite pictures showing where whole islands had been laid waste, villages swept away, the earth stripped of vegetation, and photographs of long stretches of coastlines strewn not only with wreckage, but with countless corpses, a great many, the corpses of small children. I don't think anyone, no matter how great the scope of his or her imagination, should be able easily to absorb the enormity of the catastrophe. I mean, the the immensity of it, but also the enormity, the horror of it. 
that struck the Asian rim of the whole Indian Ocean that day. And it, it would not be quite human to fail in its wake to feel some measure of spontaneous resentment towards God or fate or natura naturans or whatever other force one imagines governs the intricate web of cosmic causality. But once one's indignation at the callousness of the universe begins to subside, it's worth recalling that nothing that occurred that day or in the days that followed told us anything about the nature of our existence in this world of which we were not already entirely aware. Not that one should be cavalier in the face of mystery on so gigantic a scale or should dismiss the spiritual perplexity it occasions, but at least for Christians, it's prudent to prepare as quickly and decorously as possible for the mixed choir of secular moralists and others whose clamor will soon begin to swell about their ears, especially if you know you live in Great Britain, so, drearily enough. Um, because it, 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 many took this occasion, and we all have the, the, the bad habit, I suppose, of of um, making other people suffering the occasion for our own uh, our, our own hobby horses at times, but it was it was a strange time. So many voices appeared gravely informing us that here at last, the faith of those who believe in God must surely founder upon the rocks of empirical horrors too vast to be reconciled with any system of belief in a true transcendent order of justice or mercy. And it's, of course, somewhat petty to care overly much about uh, such things at a time like that. It's, it, it, it's difficult, perhaps, not to be annoyed when a zealous skeptic, eager to be the first to deliver God his long overdue coup de grace, begins confidently to speak as if believers have never until this moment had considered the problem of evil or confronted despair or suffering or death. Perhaps they didn't notice the Black Death, the Great War, the Holocaust, or every instance <laughs> of famine, pestilence, flood, fire, earthquake, and the whole of the human past. Perhaps every Christian who has ever had to bury a child has somehow remained insensible to the depth of his or her own bereavement. For sheer fatuity on this score, and I say this about a guy I like and as a friend of a friend, it would be difficult to surpass Martin Kettle, the uh, journalist who in the Guardian, appearing just two days after the earthquake, which I thought was rather tasteless, but as I say, he's a nice guy. Um, <laughs> surely, he argued, the arbitrariness of the destruction visited upon so many and, such, and, and on such diverse victims had to pose an insoluble conundrum for creationists everywhere. That is, that's his word for anyone who believes in creation. He's not just talking about six-day creationists. Although he wonders in concluding whether we are too cowed, that was a, even to ask if, the, if, quote, if the God can exist that can do such things. I have to be honest, I don't think a public avowal of unbelief required any great reserves of fortitude in modern Britain in those days, but he did ask if we were too cowed. Um, 
It would be courteous, one would think, if, if, if the moralist in this case would make more than a perfunctory effort to ascertain what religious persons actually do believe before presuming to, to instruct them in what they must not believe. But in truth, though confronted by such enormous sufferings, it seems to me Christians, seriously reflective Christians, have much less to fear from the piercing dialectical sallies of the village atheist than they do from the earnestness of certain believers and from the clouds of cloying incense wafting upward from the open thuribles of their hearts. As irksome as Kettle's argument was, it was just a bit insipid. It was self-righteous. More troubling at the time to me were the attempts of well-meaning Christians to rationalize the catastrophe in ways that, however inadvertently, made that argument, Kettle's argument, all at once seem profound. And these attempts spanned almost the entire spectrum of religious sensibility. Some were cold with stoical austerity. That was the Thomists. Moist with lachrymose piety, the Methodists. Wanly roseate with sickly metaphysical optimism, the Anglicans. Uh, no, I'm not being. I'm not being fair. Grimly inscribed, and I just added all that. So uh, leave the denominational stuff out. But grimly dis- instructive to me were some remarks sent to a Christian webpage discussing a Wall Street Journal column of mine. From the, well, I guess I was an opportunist too, but I, I was asked to write a column. I was asked. I didn't volunteer. And a stern, if somewhat excitable, Calvinist, intoxicated with the beauty of God's sovereignty, asserted that in, and let's grant this chimera a moment's life, the, quote, Augustinian to mystic Calvinist tradition. <laughs> Whatever that is. It's a lion at one end and a snake at the other, and in between it's a goat. And particularly in Reformed thought, suffering and death possesses, quote, epistemic significance. Insofar as they manifest divine attributes that otherwise, quote, might not be displayed. This is sort of like a very popular aesthetic argument for for eternal hell, for instance. It lets us know what God can do, as if we were in any doubt. A scholar whose work I admire contributed an eloquent expostulation invoking the holy innocence, praising our glorious privilege, not shared by the angels, of bearing scars like those of Christ and advancing the venerable heresy that our salvation from sin will result in a greater good than could have evolved from an innocence untouched by death. A man, another man, manifestly good and devout, but unable to distinguish providence from karma, argued that all are guilty through original sin, but some more than others. (laughs) And that our, quote, sense of justice requires us to believe that, quote, punishments and rewards are distributed according to our just desserts. So the little babies who died that day got what was coming to them. Because that God is, quote, the balancer of accounts, and that we must suppose that the suffering of these innocents will bear, quote, spiritual fruit, for themselves and for all mankind. It's at this moment that I became an atheist. (laughs) Well, at least in principle, not in actual conviction, but it's just as a protest against my fellow believers. All three wish to justify the ways of God to humanity, 
to affirm God's benevolence, to see meaning in the seemingly monstrous randomness of nature's violence, to find solace in God's guiding hand. None seemed to worry that he, he, he might be making a compelling case for a rejection of God or faith in divine goodness. But simply said, there's no more liberating knowledge given us by the gospel if, if it is true and none in which we should find more comfort than the knowledge that suffering and death considered in themselves have no ultimate meaning at all. Excuse me. Oh, that's delicious. Australian water is the best. Uh, the locus classicus of modern disenchantment with nature's God is, of course, probably Voltaire's poem Sur le désastre de Lisbonne, written in response to the great earthquake that on All Saints' Day in, All Saints Day in 1755 struck just offshore of what was uh, then the resplendent capital of the Portuguese Empire. Uh, Lisbon was home to a quarter million, at least 60,000 of whom perished, both from the initial tremor, which was reckoned now like the Sumatran earthquake at a Richter force of around 9.0, and from the tsunami that it cast up on shore half an hour later, and especially murderous to those who had retreated to boats in the mouth of the river Tagus to escape the destruction on land. An enormous fire soon began to consume the ruined city. Tens of thousands were drowned along the coasts of the Algarve, southern Spain, and Morocco. For Voltaire, for whom I have a very real affection, I should point out, um, a catastrophe of such indiscriminate vastitude was incontrovertible evidence against the bland optimism of popular theodicy. Voltaire was not an atheist. But his rational faith was not one in a, in a personal God of love either. His poem, for all the mellifluousness of its Alexandrines, was a lacerating attack on anyone who would assert that tout est bien. Would you dare argue, he asks, that you see the necessary effect of eternal laws decreed by a God both free and just as you contemplate? Forgive me, this is only temporary. Ces femmes, ces enfants, l'un sur l'autre entassés, sous ces marbres en poussent ces membres dispersés, sont mille infortunés que la terre dévore, qui sanglantes, déchirées et palpétantes encore, enterrées sur le toit, terminant sans secours, dans l'heureux de tout monde, le lamentable jour. There's something about the flow of the rhyme that somehow makes it more powerful for me. These women, these infants heaped one upon the other, these limbs scattered beneath shattered marbles, the hundred thousand unfortunates whom the earth devours, who, bleeding and torn, still palpitating, interred beneath their roofs, end their lamentable days without comfort amid the horror of their torment. Or would you argue that all of this is but God's just vengeance upon human iniquity? Quel crime, quel faute ont commis ces enfants sur le sein maternel écrasé et sanglant? What crime and what sin have been committed by these infants crushed and bleeding on their mother's breasts? Or would you comfort those dying in torment on desolate shores by assuring them that others will profit from their demise and that they are discharging the parts assigned them by universal law? Tout est bien, dites-vous, et tout est nécessaire. 
quoi L'univers entier, sans ses gouffres infernels, sans engloutir Lisbonne, va-t-il être plus mal, plus mal All is well, you say, all is necessary. What, the entire universe, but for this eternal, infernal abyss engulfing Lisbon would have been worse off? Excuse me, one more passage of uh, French. It has a kind of elemental power to me. Do not, says Voltaire, speak of the great chain of being, for that chain is held in the hand of a God who is himself enchained by nothing. No, ne présente plus vraiment que agité ces immuables lois de la nécessité. Cette chaîne des corps, des esprits et des mondes, au rêve décevant, au chimère profonde. Dieu tient en main la chaîne et non pas enchaîné. Par son choix bienfaisant, il est déterminé, il est libre, il est juste, il n'est point implacable. Pourquoi donc souffrons-nous sous un maître équitable? No, no longer place these immutable laws of necessity before my agitated heart, this chain of bodies, spirits, and worlds. Oh, the dreams of savants. Oh, how profoundly chimerical. God holds the chain in his hand, and he is not in any way enchained by his beneficent will all is determined he is free he is just he is never implacable why then do we suffer under so equitable a master and on it goes for a total of 234 lines one glittering heroic couplet following another until all Voltaire's indignation is spent for all its power however this poem is actually a very feeble thing compared to the case for rebellion against the will of God in human suffering that's placed in the mouth of Ivan Karamazov by a fervently Christian novelist like Dostoevsky, or not like Dostoevsky, in fact, by Dostoevsky. <laughs> not quite sure why I put it that way. <laughs> for while, while the evils Ivan recounts to his brother Alexei in that chapter are acts not of impersonal nature but of men, Dostoevsky's treatment of innocent suffering possesses a profundity that, strangely, Voltaire was not capable of. As powerful as the, as the poem on, 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 the, on the earthquake at Lisbon is. Famously, Dostoevsky collected accounts of children tortured and murdered with which to supply Ivan. Turks tearing babies from their mothers' wombs, impaling infants on bayonets, firing pistols into the mouths of babies. Parents savagely flogging their children, a five-year-old girl tortured by her mother and father, her mouth filled with her own excrement, locked at night in an outhouse, weeping her supplications to dear, kind God in the darkness, an eight-year-old serf child torn to pieces by his master's dogs for, the small, for a small accidental transgression. And they were all true stories. They're not made up for the novel. But what makes Ivan's argument so disturbing is not that he accuses God of failing to save the innocent. Rather, he rejects salvation itself insofar as he understands it and on moral grounds. He grants that one day there may be an eternal harmony established, one that we'll discover somehow necessitated the suffering of children, and perhaps mothers will forgive the murderers or the babies, and all will praise God's justice. But Ivan wants neither harmony... For love of man I reject it, he said. It is not worth the tears of that one tortured child, nor forgiveness. 
And so not denying there is a God, he simply chooses to return his ticket of admission to God's kingdom. After all, Yvonne asks, if you could bring about a universal and final beatitude for all beings by torturing one small creature to death, would you think the prize acceptable? Voltaire's poem is not a challenge to Christian faith. It inveighs against a deist God who has simply ordered the world exactly as it now is and who balances out all its eventualities in a precise equilibrium between felicity and morality. Nowhere does it address the Christian belief in an ancient alienation from God that has wounded creation in its uttermost depths and reduced cosmic time to a shadowy remnant of the world God intends and enslaved creation to spiritual and terrestrial powers hostile to God. But Ivan's rebellion is something altogether different. Voltaire sees only the terrible truth that the actual history of suffering and death is not morally intelligible. Dostoevsky sees, and this bespeaks both his moral genius and his Christian view of reality, that it would be so much more terrible if it were. Christians often find it hard. I, I mean, I... I, I discovered this anew in, in translating the New Testament uh, a few years ago. Very reasonably priced and a wonderful Christmas <laughs> present. <laughs> they find it hard to adopt the spiritual idiom of the New Testament, to think in terms, that is, of a cosmic struggle between good and evil, of Christ's triumph over the principalities of this world or the overthrow of hell. All Christians know, of course, that it's through God's self-outpouring upon the cross that we are saved. Right? That we're made able to, by grace to participate in Christ's suffering. But this should never be allowed to obscure what is revealed at Easter. That the incarnate God enters this cosmos, cosmos, you know, used quite often in the New Testament in clear contradistinction from Catesis, creation, cosmos, this order, this present order. Not simply to disclose its imminent rationality, but to break the boundaries of fallen nature asunder and to refashion creation after an ancient beauty wherein neither sin nor death had any place. Christian thought is traditionally of necessity defined evil as a privation of the good, possessing no essence or nature of its own, a purely parasitic corruption of reality, Hence, it can have no positive role to play in God's determination either of himself or the or purpose for his creatures, even if by economy God can bring good from evil. Such good water. It can in no way supply any imagined deficiency in God, God's or creation's goodness. Being infinitely sufficient in himself, God had no need of a passage through sin and death to manifest his glory in his creatures or to join them perfectly to himself. It's a kind of odd mythology that would suggest otherwise, and a rather hideous one. This is why it's misleading even to say, as that scholar I mentioned above did, that the drama of fallen redemption will make the final state of things more glorious than it might otherwise have been. No less metaphysically incoherent, though immeasurably more vile, is the suggestion of that Calvinist I mentioned, 
that God requires suffering and death to reveal certain of his attributes because it has epistemic value for us to, I'm not sure what the attributes are, capricious cruelty perhaps, injustice, a depraved sense of humor. I'm not quite sure what he thought it was revealing. It is precisely sin, suffering, and death that blind us to God's true nature. There is, of course, some comfort to be derived from the thought that everything that occurs at the level of what Thomas Aquinas called secondary causality in nature or history is governed not only by a transcendent providence, but by some kind of universal teleology that makes every instance of pain and loss an indispensable moment in a grand scheme whose ultimate synthesis will justify all things. But do consider the price at which that comfort is purchased. It requires us to believe in and love a God whose good ends will be revealed not only in spite of, but entirely by way of every cruelty, every fortuitous misery, every catastrophe, every betrayal, every sin the world has ever known. It requires us to believe in the eternal spiritual necessity of a child dying an agonizing death from diphtheria, of a young mother ravaged by cancer, of tens of thousands of Asians swallowed in an instant by the sea, of millions murdered in death camps and gulags of forced famines, and so on. It seems a strange thing to find peace in the universe rendered morally intelligible at the cost of a God rendered morally loathsome. Better, it seems to me, if these are our choices, the view of the ancient Gnostic sects. It's a word I don't actually use very much because it's not helpful. But nonetheless, here I'll use it. However ludicrous some of their beliefs, they at least, when they concluded that suffering and death were essential aspects of the Creator's design, had the good sense to yearn to know a better God than the Creator. If this, if you accept the premise. I don't believe Christians are obliged or even allowed to look upon the devastation visited on the coasts of the Indian Ocean and to console themselves with vacuous cant about the mysterious course taken by God's goodness in this world or to ensure others that some ultimate meaning or purpose resides in so much misery. Either Christianity is or it's nothing at all, a religion of salvation. I know that the syntax of that sentence was a bit confusing, but I have a bit of jet lag. Their faith is in a God. Christians, Christian faith is in a God who has come to rescue creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. And so, while it's not perfectly satisfactory... and time constrains us, I'll just say, Christians are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred, not to rationalize them, not to look for the hidden hand of God's mercy and providence in them, but to embrace that, what I would call, provisional dualism of the New Testament that truly believes that this present evil cosmos is not the true face of creation and is not to be justified but overthrown. And while we know 
that Christ takes the sufferings of, of creatures up into his own suffering, it's not because he or they had need of suffering, but because he would not abandon them to the grave. While we know that the victory over, an evil, over evil and death has been won, we know also that it is a victory yet to come and that creation, therefore, as Paul says, groans in expectation of a glory one day to be revealed. Until then, the world remains a place of struggle between light and darkness, truth and falsehood, life and death, and in such a world, our portion is charity. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. It's not a faith that would necessarily satisfy Ivan Karamazov, but neither is it one that his arguments can entirely defeat, for it has set us free from optimism and taught us hope instead. We can rejoice that we're saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace, that God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great meaningful synthesis, but will judge much of history false and damnable, that he will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languages. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, for the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Thank you. Well, um, we can have some interactions and questions. Capture what? Questions. Oh, the questions. Would you be up for some questions? Yeah, no, I thought you meant like, you know, capture the mice that were running around. So, would anyone like to interact comments or questions? Uh, Thank you very much for that, uh, David. As always, fascinating. Um, I, I would like to introduce you to the glories of cricket, though. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to introduce me. I was actually quite a good... Uh, well, I was good with the bat, not, not bowling. Uh, was, uh, and, and I was an excellent fielder because if you grow up playing baseball, fielding in cricket is like taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to discuss this later on, but, but, but my, my real question, though, is... You make a, a very, very um, compassionate case for how we should react to evil in the world. But I feel, unless I've missed it, there's nothing there about why the evil should be there in the first place. Couldn't God have made a world which is just as noble, just as beautiful, just as meaningful, without so much evil at least? I would think so, yes. 
but uh, I assume that the venture of creation, here I'm going to sound like Bulgakov, if that's okay. Is the calling into being of spiritual creation from nothingness into an infinite ascent into union with God? That's the picture that I think uh, we Eastern Christians certainly presume. Calling spiritual creatures into being is calling free natures, not libertarianly free in the in the banal sense, but free nonetheless. They have to assent to what they are in order to be spiritual beings and to assent. God, even God, does not have the power to create a free spiritual nature in a predetermined state. Even God cannot create a dramatist persona and say, this is free. There must be, for a true spiritual nature, a created nature, an absolute past in non-being and an absolute future in the infinity of God. And that means a freedom that is not determinate, even though it is determined towards an ultimate end that cannot be avoided. The ultimate end is theosis, union with God, glorification of creation. But there is many paths there too, as there are spiritual natures, as many heavens and hells as there are souls along the way to that final consummation. And the story that Christians have been taught to believe is that that in that act, God handed over the realm of what Thomas calls secondary, causality, to free spiritual natures that are not yet complete, but that are coming are becoming God. I hope that language doesn't shock anyone. I know there are a lot of reformed people in Sydney, <laughs> but um, so I mean, you know, uh, saying God could have cre- well, God could create an infinite number of worlds, but there's only one way to create a free spiritual nature. Um, thanks. Could you just help me understand what you just said? Um, were you? <laughs> no, were you... no, that, that, that's asking too much. <laughs> um, I'm sure that I'm sure the fault is at my end. Um, so, if can you, or probably the best thing to say is, can you tell me where this is wrong? Have you just have you applied the free will defence, which applies to people and the evil that people do? to natural, what people call natural evil, maybe you don't call it that, but have you just applied that to natural evil and said that there are free spirits in the New Testament cosmology that have certain powers of secondary causality and it's basically the same argument but applied to the spiritual realm? The Christian story, whether it's plausible or not, uh, is that humanity... Somehow, well, we mentioned Gregory, we mentioned uh, Maximus earlier. Bit of a fraud issue with all the cops in the room to bring up Maximus, but in, in, it's the same faith. There were just a little disagreements about uh, terminology and about hands and tongues and things. But, but um, sorry, you know, the, the humanity was sort of the, the, the occupied this, this position in the cosmic liturgy, the, the wholeness of creation, 
that is a, a, a priestly mediatorial role between physical animal, vegetal creation and spiritual creation and that the fall of humanity which did not occur within time as we know it. I mean, the story of the Garden of Eden is a myth, but it's a myth that for Christians points to an estrangement that had devastating consequences, not just for us, but for all of creation. Um, That is the Christian story. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. I mean, I can't prove it. But... um, the claim has always been Christian. The claim in the New Testament is under this present evil, this cosmos is under the archon of this cosmos, is not creation as God intended it, but, God, but creation as enslaved to death. And death doesn't just mean the expiration, which I hope, you know, to avoid as long as possible of my individual person. It means an ontological condition that everything is shattered and torn asunder and involved in mortality, which is pain and suffering and estrangement. That is the Christian story, that spiritual creation actually determines the, the reality of physical, of natural creation. And that, that's why Paul says the glorification of creation comes through the creation that's revealed in the sons of glory that the restoration of the human, and of all the powers, I mean, Paul has a very clear cosmology of not just human spiritual creation, but, you know, rather mutinous or incompetent angels, not the way later theology talked about fallen angels, Lucifer. I mean, they're, they're evil spirits too involved, but it's a different... I don't want to get into Second Temple Judaism. But anyway, the point is... That, that for Paul, the whole thing has been deranged and disordered and in Christ has been restored. And in the end, uh, the ultimate end of all things is, is finally to achieve the true story that, that, that God is telling in creation, which is the union of all things with God in, in, in divine glory and in which we have a part to play, which spiritual creation has a part to play as a kind of cosmic priesthood. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know of any other version of Christianity uh, that, 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 you know. Uh, yep. um, just a, it's just riffing on the same um, question, really. So going back to the beginning of your reading and you're talking about all the different gods um, mm-hmm. of all the different peoples... Are you, in a sense, suggesting those gods exist and that are responsible for the tsunami? Um, no, that was that was pure poetry. Yeah. Uh, but in exquisite, to... don't you think? Oh, that was gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, I that do believe I do believe there are spiritual powers and principalities and things like that. Yeah, but no, I mean, they they may have some response. I, mean, I don't know if you know you've got little demons down there at the tectonic plates. So <laughs> I'm not quite with the mechanisms. So I don't think you need that to say that all of creation is in the power, that that the physical corruption of death, which dominates all things, which is the reality we know, which in one sense is very real, but in another sense is an illusion. It's not the true face of creation. It includes spiritual dimensions. 
I don't actually, if I, were to, if I were to give a place to those other gods, it would be a good one. I, to be honest, I'm not, I, don't, uh, I'm not, I, don't have, I don't hold with this notion of condemning other faiths as heathen and pagan. They're just different ways of understanding God that may get some things wrong and some things right. But, um, you know, bodhisattvas are very good fellows. You know, they, they, after all, they, they take the vow that they themselves will not enter into final bliss until all other beings enter before them. You know, so I wouldn't, uh, I, would, I would never speak ill of, of uh, Kishitaba, Garba, or Amitaba, or any of the others. I, I kind of like them. And, um, but, but there are other, yeah, don't worry, but that's good, very good. <laughs> Do I believe that there are, are fallen spirits other than human beings? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I don't know much. I don't understand them. I don't know much about them. But I find that very plausible. Uh, just it, sometimes feel, if nothing else, that there really is a spirit of, of you know, that, that quite often when we're, we find ourselves in situations that seem to exceed their call, where there's a, a, a sort of spiritual evil in our experience that exceeds simple causal explanations, like, say, Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> it seems perfectly rational to posit a dimension of spiritual evil with incredibly bad taste in hairstyle. <laughs> Um, yeah. um, you referred to the Augustinian Thomist Calvinist chimera, I think it was, commenting yeah. on... I mean, I, mean I, I could understand sort of what he was talking about, but I mean, <laughs> Augustinian, it's the Thomistic part. Augustinian Calvinist, sure. Whereas Calvin really was not poring over the Summa Theologiae. Not, yeah. not a fan. Um, and as a person who engages publicly in theology yourself, as ultimately those commenting <laughs> yeah. on forums well, are... No, 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 do it in public, for what we're saying. In public and for money, David. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Filthy lucre. Yeah. <laughs> what springs to mind for me is that perhaps this discussion throughout the history of Christianity in particular regarding the role of suffering would have had more recognition of the... Um, distastefulness of trying to justify the death of infants if there were more voices from the half of us who experience death and conception in our own bodies and Don't given know. particularly the rate at which miscarriage happens but am I just underestimating the ability of Calvinist husbands to be in empathy with the female experience Men are of horrible uh. <laughs> No, I think that's actually no. I mean, actually, you, you're so pre- I, I honestly believe that one of the great tragedies of uh, not only Christian history but a great deal of religious history is that is is that the boys, the, you know, is is a certain let's just say dominantly male perspective on a lot of things because I I I, I don't know. I mean, I understand. I'm a father and. I, Men love their children too. <laughs> they do love their babies. We get, oh, you know, uh, we, you know, they. they uh, you pass monka, you know. Pierce, my son pierces my heart, you know. So. But I find it. I would find it just. It's more 
it's more difficult for me to believe uh, to to con- conceive of a mother, not just I don't mean a woman, but a mother able to adopt the theology of the late Augustine, which you, your baby is born, you know, the baby, and say he's unbaptized at this moment, he's utterly loathsome in the eyes of God. This is a thing abominable, who belongs to the mass of the damned. That's so perverse and stupid and evil an idea. You realize that for all of his genius. Augustine was a very twisted individual, by, especially by the end. And I kind of wish he'd actually spent more time with his son, Adeodatus. Maybe he would have, you know, maybe been there for the birth. You know, they didn't do that in those days. But if we could just sort of like project modern obstetrics back. And, you know, I don't know. But, um, yeah, no, I think, there, I think um, it's much harder to be phlegmatic and cold and cruel in that, that way, for, I, I would just imagine. I'm not a mother. I've never had a child and as much as I might want to. Um, but, yes. I think I'm going to just keep saying it over and over again. Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, David, when we had our conversations on Gregory of Nyssa, um, and, and I think in the third of those conversations, I... I I entitled it, Why Did the Wrong Guy Win? in terms of the dominating influence between Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine. But I mean, reading... Well, he didn't didn't win in the East. It's you. Well, not not my my Coptic brethren and sisters over here. I'm sorry. Us Westerners. But um, there's something very feminine about Gregory of Nyssa, obviously, with Macrina, uh, and not just Macrina, but their mother, it has always struck me as a theology that's very female influence. I mean, clearly on the soul and the resurrection, it may as well be. But he puts himself in the position of being, uh, he's the student, the dumb student. It's his sister who, and I, don't, I think, David, your feeling is that is not a fiction. No, no, no I, think, I think Macrina, I mean, she uh, was an ascetic who didn't write. Uh, I think all of the Cappadocians were of the school of origin. They were all, and you see that clearly in her teaching. But I think, yeah, I think Macrina really was his spiritual teacher to a far greater degree than his brother Basil was. And that's why he memorialized her there. He didn't make it, he made clear that she got the credit, so to speak, uh, for the teachings that he he was offering there. Yeah, Paul, you of all people. On the back benches. I just wanted to, first of all, thank you, David. I wanted to ask the Guardian newspaper person who said... Martin Kettle, yeah. Who said, you know, ha, now we know that, you know, God isn't good. But... Until that moment, it was an open question. Yes, yes. (laughs) Because nothing that catastrophic had ever happened in the history of the universe to that point, yeah. I, I take that point. And yet, the puzzle is that journalist had to have an idea of the good. Yeah. And if it is all nothing, then the good is nothing and the tsunami is neither here nor there. Do you see? Is there a sort of a whole other consideration around the notion of God and evil? Well, well, actually, I I said this to Martin Kettle. Um, What is it, uh, you know, are are you simply telling us to set our illusions aside or are you offended 
or are you angry at the God who isn't there? Because invariably they are. I mean, otherwise they're not going to get on the soapbox. I mean, it's like, well, you know, if it's just a matter of indifference, it's like, look at the silly people over there who believe and the silly people over there who care enough to not believe. But when you get up there, you're really trying to convince people not to believe. It's because your moral sensibility has been offended. The, the people would, would dare to suggest there's goodness behind this evil. And then you're immediately called it an infinite regress, right? Um, and I've always, and I've actually find that rather touching. You know, I um, back the horrible title that was given to the first book I, I, I published with Yale was called. They called it Atheist Delusions, which made no sense. Because <laughs> the title I'd given it was the Christian Revolution. It was a book about history, you know. But it was given that because that was the time the new atheists were in there. It was, you know, the four horsemen of the new atheism. Uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, right? Well, Sam Harris has turned out to be a white supremacist, uh, so who cares about him? <laughs> he, he's got it coming to him in the world to come. Um, Daniel Dennett is an old nemesis. Richard Dawkins is a twit. I mean, he's you know he's a, he's a third tier zoologist who is who teaches a form of neo-Darwinian gradualism that was out of date 80 years ago when, when the brilliant Barbara McClintock discovered transposons. But she's a woman, so he didn't pay attention. Um, but Christopher Hitchens, I liked Christopher. You know, I was supposed to debate him on this issue, and then um, he got the throat cancer that killed him. We were supposed to have a public debate at, um, I think it was Columbia. George Stephanopoulos, I don't know if any of you know who he is. Yeah, he was good. Because, of course, it all came through the, you know, the Greek Orthodox Mafia, you know, so, you know that was setting it up. Um, all right, not Mafia. But the Greek Orthodox were setting it up, and they were going to get George Stephanopoulos to moderate the thing about Christopher Hitchens is he was um, he was uh, it was all over the place. I mean, he would he, like that book he wrote. God is not great. There are egregious historical errors on every page. Okay, but his burning compassion in the man. Now, sometimes it would lead him to stupid things. You know, I think his support of the first invasion of Iraq, you know, was a little bit. But I understood why. He had seen people suffering under Saddam Hussein. And uh, he always said, you know, it's funny, he kept up good relations with believers because he acknowledged that his love, his concern for the good was something that he couldn't account for. And he, and he always left open the possibility. He once said to a friend of mine, well, he was sort of a friend of mine, Joseph Bottom, he said to you know, sometimes I think I'm just going to, he was at dinner with him, he said, oh, you know, I'm just going to look and say one day over there, it was always there right in front of me. The caring about my fellow human beings means there is a God. Um, so, I mean, the, I have a great admiration uh, for an atheism of indignation of that sort. That I, can, I cannot accept the death of a child. And because it's a rejection of God that's actually inspired by a deeper love of God. <laughs> it just doesn't yet know how to think through to that conclusion.
And I think Christopher Hitchens, you said, uh, David, to me, he held open the possibility he was wrong. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, you can see it. There's a film out there, a documentary called The Four Horsemen of the New Age. It was a fatuous thing. And all, those four are gathered in Salman Rushdie's apartment in, in, in New York. And, and the last question asked is, you know, would the world be a better place if there were no religious belief at all? And Daniel Dennett said, oh, yeah, of course. He's a very reflective guy. Um, <laughs> Sam Harris said yes, although Sam Harris practices gay Luke Buddhism, so I'm not quite sure what he meant by religion, but right, there's no belief in God. Richard Dawkins said, oh, it would be paradise. <laughs> then he got to Hitchens last, and he said, well, no, I, I don't want that. I could, we could be wrong, uh, you know. And he said, Richard, he said, he didn't really know Dawkins well. Actually, I should point this out. Hitchens didn't really know. He hadn't even read The God Delusion because he didn't think Dawkins wrote well enough. Um, but he says, Dawkins flashed a look of absolute hatred at him at that moment. And he said it was chilling. He realized that how much anger there was in Dawkins. And, uh, but no, Chris, Christopher Hitchens was a, was a mixed... I mean, he, he on the one hand, he was very confident in his atheism. And on the other hand, he was completely not confident in it. Any other questions? Thank you so much for the very um, deep, comprehensive uh, talk on suffering. I'm a uni student. Oh, I thought student. you were talking about the baseball part. <laughs> I am, the baseball. I'm a uni student, and realistically, none of my uni friends will come and sit in a lecture like this. They won't read your books. It's too, they're not, they're not Christians. Well, so. not, not, not even the fiction. Give them a go. I'll give them a copy. I mean, really. Yeah. Um, how would you describe what you've explained today in a 20, 25 words or less sort of <laughs> um, conception? <laughs> I wouldn't. I would never start here talking to them. I mean, other than to say, if you think. I mean, don't assume that you know what believers believe. Most believers don't know what they believe about these things. They think they believe something, and then when the crisis comes, they realize that's not really how they understood God or the love of God. It's like, um, you know, they say there are no atheists in foxholes. That's not true. Um, but there are, you know, it's like, well, people, do you believe that all... I, I used to have a friend who believed that he was a very strict Thomist, and Thomas said that suicides all go to eternal hell because they've committed a mortal sin and and can't get, uh, can't be shriven by a priest before, until his own son committed suicide. Well, he knew his son, and he knew his son was uh, driven by demons. And I, I don't mean literal demons, but I mean... So that's what I mean. I said people don't, they think they know what they believe, but they don't. But I would say that unbelievers, you know, people on these issues, if, you know, I, I would, you know, people like Martin Kettle would say, you have such a crude and such a childish notion. I mean, a Christian who has buried his or her own child is not 
someone who is naive about re- about the reality of evil. So start again. They're not that Christianity isn't deism. It has a very dark view of the present situation things. But that's not where I would start the conversation really with with someone who's uninterested in these things. Um, I mean, I I, I I would take the drier road of you know talking about things like the nature of consciousness or of contingent existence or things like that. Because I really think when you start at this, you start with these questions, all you get, if this is your starting, this is where the, the um, debate is prosecuted, uh, one gets a lot of emotion and a lot of personal pain and a lot of personal indignation, but you really don't advance one direction or the other. Just, you just talk past each other. Um. David, one of the ironies, as you just said, what you said about the naivety of thinking that Christians have never buried a child. Um, well, I mean, that seemed to be Martin Kettle's. Uh, it just uh, until this moment, Christians had never realised there was such a thing as grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, perhaps just you might quickly mention. I know you, uh, you believe uh, Bukharkov is the greatest theologian of the 20th century, you might explain how he came to faith at the death of his child, I think. Yeah, it, was, it was really, uh, he was, um, I mean, he had a, came from a family of, that included very famous bishops and priests. The Bulgakov family is a very distinguished one. He's a distant cousin of the great Mikhail Bulgakov, the great novelist, you know, Master and Margarita, and White Guard and all that. Uh, and he always sort of hovered on it, but I mean, he was also a firm Marxist at one time. He was a brilliant e- economic philosopher. But he lost a son, and it was at his funeral, the funeral of his son, that he had this sudden visionary experience of his son in transfigured in the glory of Christ. And he knew it was not an emotional, not a psychological experience, that he had, that the veil had parted. For a moment, and thereafter he became. You know, yes, I think he's the greatest theologian of the 20th century. That's true. Also, perhaps the greatest Eastern Christian thinker since the time of Maximus, which means the greatest Christian thinker since the time of Maximus. Why don't I, you know. <laughs> uh, well, no, there's some Western figures I like to. Nicholas of Cusa and the Rhineland mystics. Yeah, no, it was, um, that's the curious thing. At the moment of utmost grief, he thought he'd been vouchsafed the knowledge that this grief is a transient prelude to a beauty uh, and, and a glory that we cannot otherwise, that we cannot imagine, but of which we can catch a glimpse by the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's more than interesting. It's deeply moving. <laughs> Excellent. I was like, just, I hate it though. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, no, sir. Can you talk about Explain to people how he died. I mean, that was very touching. Oh, well, see, now this is when people start thinking I'm, I'm superstitious. Uh, but no, it's true on his deathbed. Um, Bulgakov was a controversial figure in the Orthodox Church because you always have unimaginative Philistines in every communion. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the, uh, 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 
Um, but on his deathbed, there were like a dozen different people who saw him transfigured. I mean, even two of his atheist friends who ceased being atheists when they saw how he died. I mean, literally radiating light uh, from his face and seeming to be 30 years younger and be more beautiful. Um, I didn't see it, but, but I mean, it, it, a dozen people were there and all of them reported the same thing, including those who, though his friends, they were part of the Russian-Parisian community, had never been believers until that moment. Hi, David. Hello. Um, Thank you for this uh, moving talk. Uh, you are you, you are very influential in my Christian journey and my friends as well. Uh, all Copts, as you can see, you are very influential in the Coptic community. I, I'm, 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 I've often been called Coptic in my theology, so I just want you to know that. We're glad to have you. So, so glad to anyway, have you. There's a writing a series of lectures on Christology for the Stanton Lectures at Cambridge next year, which will get me kicked out. Oh, yeah. 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 We know people. <laughs> so my question is, and this actually, pretty, like, it, this is even before this lecture, like I've, I've always been a little bit confused about the fall. Uh, because I kind of like I try to keep one foot like in theology and one foot in, in science as much as possible, mm-hmm. and I, it seems that the nature of this world, the, the predator and the prey, uh, predates any conceivable uh, time in history where we can say Adam was here and it was perfect, and then the fall mm-hmm. happened. And you said it's uh, a myth that didn't happen in time, but then that leaves some of us a little bit confused how it happened, and. Was the fall this related to it? Was the fall intentional? Was the fall was the fall part of God's plan in order to create spiritual beings? I understand from this lecture that no is the answer. It's probably the evil doing. Um, okay, I'm an originist. Uh, you know, for, um, no, I mean I, I don't believe that that there is any period in cosmic history of an unfallen creation. History is a continuum. Of course, in the ancient world, this is how church fathers like Maximus, and I would say Gregory too. I think it's clear from De Hominis Opificio, the book on the making of humanity, believe. They tended to think in three three kinds of time. There's chronos or tempos, which course, for Platonism is the moving image of the eon. That's the second level. And the eon is the fullness of time in its in a kind of spiritual dimension, or, the, or they would call the angelic age or the angelic eye. And then there's the the eternity of God beyond all ages, right? And I think that it's clear that for say Gregory and many of the churches, certainly for for Maximus, the fall is something that happens not in time as we know it. The time as we know it is the fallen result of the fall in the spiritual realm of the eon. You know, that's how that... If there was a fall, yeah, that's where, when, there, not before or after, but else, but in a different frame of time altogether. Time uh, not as a shadowy succession of momentary reflections of a fullness that can never be fully embodied at any given instant. That's chronos, 
the moving image of the eon, which is the fullness, right? Um, so um, it, it, it would, certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be in conflict with, uh, you know, rigorous. I mean, in terms of scientific fact, the world, the best we can say, 4.5 billion years old, human beings evolved from lower primates. You know, that's, that clearly is, is, is where we come from in terms of the physical history of natural beings. But our spiritual history lies elsewhere. Uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. I'm not actually trying to be evasive here. So I'm just um, I'm running out of water too. Could I? Uh, yeah, oh, thank you. Anyway, is that sufficient? Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I. Um, I understand the fall not as something that happened in time. Now, of course, you remember from Maximus, he has a, the fall is instantaneous. The moment of creation, there's all, the fall happens. <coughs> because, of course, <coughs> excuse me, um, the line, subspatiae aeternitatis, um, you know, uh, time is a succession, right, for us. But, but under, but from the vantage of eternity, all, all things are in one moment. And so, for Maximus, the fall and creation are simultaneous. You know, our spiritual nature at once already rebels, even in freely assenting to its own creation. But that's all speculative. It's true. <laughs> But speculative. Um, I mean, I do think that, that if there's any meaning to the Christian language of the fall, that's what its meaning has to be. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, uh, that, that obviously otherwise. Although I've known, again, I was complaining about Thomists, but that's what they're there for. Uh, Thomists trying to say, well, no, no. This order of creation, this world as we know it, is the creation that God intends but then humankind was created in a kind of special bubble that's you know outside it had the you know outside of the continuum of, of death and you know and they try to reconcile this with with the fact of hominid evolution by saying that it's some magic instant God infused a rational soul in two primates within a gene pool and then um, they had the choice to be elevated out of nature into a state of supernature. To me, that, you know, I don't know what to make of that except that it's silly. But it may sound, sound just, maybe what I'm saying sounds just as absurd to some, but I mean, whatever the case, I think if the language of the fall has any meaning, it's not about something that happened in time. It's something about how time as we know it came to be. G'day David, my name's Sam. I'm a White Sox fan, so I feel your pain as an Orioles fan. Uh, pain? We're leading the American League. Uh, yeah, 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 we have well, more we wins than... very unloved teams. So. Uh, yeah, the White Sox. Southsiders, but that's because everyone in Chicago loves the Cubs. The Baltimore Orioles are loved by every true lover. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Limited in choice. Okay. So my question is this. The comeback to the free will defence is often, well, won't we have free will in heaven? So here's a good possible world where you have free will and no suffering. So why didn't God just 
fast forward and create heaven in the first place? Well, for the reasons I just gave, that, that no, uh, that, you know, first of all, I'm not sure what free will in heaven would be other than absolute union with God, true freedom being the freedom of a nature to flourish in its uttermost end, which would be union with God, right? But um, that uh, that you cannot be a free spiritual age. And that cannot be the case if you're created already in a condition of psychological identity. Somewhere in the constitution, the structure of your being as a creature, there has to be a real emergence from nothingness towards the infinity of God. Otherwise, you really are just a puppet. You can call it freedom if you want, but it's a freedom that's posited in you as a psychological condition of an identity that's been imposed. You do not become the spiritual person you are. You are simply that character in the drama. So, no, I, I would say that that, can, that couldn't possibly be the case. If you're talking, again, freedom I don't take to be the trivial condition of the ability to deliberate and make, it, make specific individual choices. Freedom, as I understand it, is the absolute orientation of the natural will to the good and the power of the deliberative will within us to become ever more transparent to that, that true natural ground of freedom and therefore ever more transparent to the presence of God. Hamlet is not free. And the kind of freedom the kind of freedom you're talking about would be little different from the kind of freedom we fictively imagine for Hamlet. Hello. Um, so would it be fair to... Um, so you were, you were talking about... Um, uh, towards the end of your talk, thank you, by the way, um, saying that um, Christians are permitted to hate evil. So to look at, you know, um, a dying kid or something and say, yeah, that sucks. Um, well, more than that. Yeah, say like that to hate it, yeah. Um, you know, that this, is, this yeah. is absolute evil, not not an evil that has a, pres- has a necessary providential presence within a great design. Okay, all right. So does that make suffering... I, I would imagine as someone experiencing that sort of thing, that would be a very frustrating mystery to live with. Um, I, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, uh, I nearly died in quite a lot of pain back in 2014. Came very close to suicide, in fact. Um, if I had thought that this was part of God's plan and that it had some sort of dialectical significance beyond me as the suffering being I was, I would have despised God. It was the knowledge that this is not, this is not what I was called to be as a creature and that, that I would be liberated from this. Um... I, I think people, you know, it's like, I have to believe that suffering has meaning. Really, does Auschwitz, I mean, does that make you feel better about Auschwitz? Yeah, that, uh, that, that it, it had a purpose. Well, no, it didn't. <laughs> you know, it is pure nihil, pure nothingness, pure negation of the good. Thanks, thanks for sharing your personal experience. Yeah. 
Um, hi, David. Again, thanks for the talk. Um, I'm left wondering at the end of it, uh, like I buy into everything you said and I'm a reformed, reformed person, so... Grew up in reformed circles and I've repented of it now. So um, your writings have been really helpful for me in that. I want to thank you for that. But um, I still kind of get to the end of the, the, the picture you painted tonight and I'm wondering where's God. Um, I can attribute... I have no problems attributing evil to being purely evil. Um, you know, depths of suffering and um, violence against people, an outrageous thing. I don't want to make God responsible for that. But at the end of the day, where's God? Um, it seems to me that I can acknowledge, you know, there's been this mighty forces of evil, whatever they are, that have um, blasphemed yeah, on the will. But where, where's God at the end of the day? I, I take it God is the one who's overthrowing these things in Christ and to whom we're being drawn through the shadows of this world and becoming the spiritual beings that we are. I'm not. I'm not sure what. I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what it is that, that's missing there. I. Um, okay. So doesn't that then make it? If doesn't it sounds to me like that's making this progression to infinity. Um, making evil part of the necessary part of the world in order to have that progression, isn't that...? No, uh, it's just that's the contingent fact of what, is, what we've done with our freedom, but it doesn't make it necessary that something is the case, that something is a possibility within the case, is not the same thing as saying it's a metaphysical necessity that in and of itself has a positive meaning. I mean... Um, it, 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 uh, it may not be satisfactory, but it's, it's not a small distinction uh, to say that, that there is entailed within the reality of spiritual creation the possibility of evil. And then saying differently, not entailed, but necessarily the creation of spiritual reality requires the positive supplement of evil. I'm perfectly happy to say that no, there's no need for there's no need for the fall. There's no need for uh, death. There's no need for cancer. But there is a need for the possibility of of, of misuse of spiritual freedom, and that spiritual freedom is not just a personal liberty, it is a powerful thing. It shapes the reality we inhabit. That it is spiritual consciousness that creates the world we share. And that we as one in a, in a body of death are actual creators of this condition of estrangement. But nowhere in there is there a metaphysical or a logical Necessity. There might be a nomological necessity if you care about boring distinctions of, of, of uh, modality of necessity and contingency, and I do, uh, <laughs> because you can baffle people with language like that and they think you're very clever. <laughs> but nowhere in there is there a, a metaphysical necessity, but there is the necessity of a possibility. Okay, thank you. That's a lot to think about. I'll go away and think about it. <laughs>
And keep us up to date if you find something at the end of your thing. <laughs> Just have a couple more. Um, Um, thank you, David, for your, your talk so far. Um, my question is, um, being orthodox, quite a lot of the ascetical literature talks about accepting everything from the hand of God, being thankful for suffering, that, that kind of thing. How would you reconcile that with this view of, of hating suffering? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, well, first of all, I think some of the ascetical literature is lousy. I mean, just because just because a saintly person wrote it doesn't mean it's always right in the way it's articulated. But it's perfectly possible to see God providentially bringing spiritual fruits out of evil. I mean, that's that's not a contradiction. Um, you know, um, it was quite like Macrina on her deathbed saying, you know, accepting God's grace and mercy and love in this, and accepting the suffering without hating God or without resenting others. With a, you know, uh, providentially, there's a spiritual progress in that and spiritual fruit. But again, there's a difference between providential work of, because, you know, providence is, you know, real for Christians, that God really is working within the realm of secondary causality. But that's very different from saying that ontologically the suffering is good or that metaphysically it's a necessary condition of being a spiritual being, a spiritual creature. Um, but also, yeah, you do get also a certain amount of pious claptrap in the spiritual tradition. That's we'll, make, we'll make this one the last question, uh, just so David can go to sleep um, privately, not publicly. I'm curious to hear your views on a philosophy that seems to be gaining more attention recently, um, which is the philosophy of antinatalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps it's I, I, I prescribe that only for Yankees fans. Yeah. <laughs> they should not be allowed to have children. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just raise them as Yankees fans. So they, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's leading proponent, um, David Benatar, where um, he argues that coming into existence is um, a serious harm, and his conclusion is that we ought not to create human beings. And I'm just curious on your thoughts about that philosophy. I, I think, you know, given the premises from which David Benatar works, I mean, he's, he's a sort of a... Um, he's sort of grasping the nettle and saying, uh, you know, the Buddha was right, all this dukkha, suffering, and it outweighs sukha, the sweetness of life, and that, uh, uh, but being a radical materialist, he doesn't actually believe that, that we come into being through parichitsamatpada, so there's not the, you know, Conquering the, the will to exist isn't going to prevent in a future incarnation, so that doesn't or future becoming. But he, but he, you know, he's working from a very simple set of intuitions. That uh, now, the, you know, the, 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 usually the people who argue with them say, "Well, what do you mean that you're do, bringing someone into existence into existence is doing harm because you can't you can do neither good nor evil to one who doesn't exist, and you know, and they want to." 
which is a silly argument. You know, it's not a good riposte. I, I would say it's, antinatalism is a perfectly rational uh, philosophy, given the premises that he, that he works from. Yeah, life is suffering. Sooner or later, everyone's going to suffer. The last moments are not going to be good. The moments leading up to the last moment are going to be uh, a mixture of, of, of um, pain and pleasure, but the pain will outweigh the pleasure in the end. Every attachment that you have is a transient prelude to an enduring grief. Everything you love will die, or you will die, but as Gregory of Nyssa said, now Gregory of Nyssa in De Virginitate says, every time, uh, and he, he was married, by the way, and probably widowed. He was not like Augustine, a lifelong bachelor, which is why he has a better theology, probably. <laughs> um, but he said, um, you know, every time a man and woman embrace, every time husband and wife embrace, one of them is embracing someone who will mourn him or her, and the other is embracing someone whom the other will mourn. Um, so yeah, if Benatar is right, if that's the story of things, I happen to agree with him. Stop having babies. <laughs> uh, because you're doing something cruel. You like having a baby, you have to pay with the baby. the <laughs> baby. But that the, the, the ultimately you're bringing someone into the world that if the world is what Benatar thinks it is, yeah, it's, there's going to be more pain. And it's just a radical utilitarianism, the greatest amount of, of um, good that can be done is not to do the evil that, that bringing children into the world would then be. Yeah. Happily, that's not actually the story of things. <laughs> I hope. Well, yeah. David, um, look, it's been wonderful uh, and also really great to interact with the questions. Uh, we, I think we've got more of your thinking and more of yourself, which you've shared. So let's just thank David.